Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sina Janolo. I studied neuroscience and then bioengineering, graduating with a PhD from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Currently, I am working in the diagnostics industry. Today, I have with me Christopher M. Palmer. Um, he's a Harvard psychiatrist and researcher working at the interface of metabolism and mental health. He's the director of the Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education at McLean Hospital and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. For more than two decades, he has held leadership roles in psychiatric education at Harvard, McLean Hospital, and nationally. He spent more than 15 years conducting neuroscience research in the areas of substance use and sleep disorders. On top of these academic pursuits, he has continued to practice psychiatry, working with people who have treatment-resistant mental disorders using a variety of standard treatments. He has been pioneering the use of the medical ketogenic diet in the treatment of psychiatric disorders, conducting research in this area, treating patients, publishing academic articles, and speaking globally on this topic. Most recently, he has developed the first comprehensive theory of what causes mental illness, integrating biological, psychological, and social research into one unifying theory, the brain energy theory of mental illness. And today we are discussing the book, Brain Energy, that he shares this unifying theory. Welcome, Dr. Palmer. Thank you so much for having me. So um, let's start a little bit. uh, Maybe you can tell us a little bit how in your journey that we just very, you know, briefly summarize came to understand from, you know, more behavioral aspects of the mental uh, illnesses to this um, theory um, of, of energy and metabolism as the source or the unifying pathway, as you call it. So <clears throat> the real story is it's one of serendipity. And I just stumbled upon some things that were actually kind of shocking to me as an academic psychiatrist that made me question the entire field and made me question a lot of what I have been taught and what we as a field tell millions of people. Um, And, 
you know, there were there were many moments along the way, but probably the most dramatic and striking was in 2016 when I helped a patient lose weight. This patient was a 33-year-old man with schizoaffective disorder, which is a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. For and you know, he had he had daily hallucinations and delusions. He could barely go out in public. He was tormented by his illness, had tried 17 different medications. None of them stopped his symptoms, had been in and out of hospitals, and for a variety of reasons asked for my help to lose weight. And we decided to try the ketogenic diet. Within two weeks, I, he started losing weight, and I began to notice a powerful antidepressant effect in him. But the thing that really upended everything I knew as a psychiatrist with it was within about two to three months, he started spontaneously reporting that his longstanding hallucinations were going away, his paranoid delusions were going away. This man went on to lose 160 pounds and has kept it off to this day, but he was more importantly able to do things he had never been able to do since the time of his diagnosis. He was able to perform improv in front of a live audience, complete a certificate program, move out of his father's home, just things that people with schizophrenia are not supposed to be able to do. Schizophrenia is not supposed to go away at all, let alone you know, on less medication, let alone from a diet. And that started a path um, for me to kind of do a deep dive into the science of the ketogenic diet to try to understand what on earth just happened. Why on earth would this even affect his brain or brain function? That led me to a tremendous amount of neuroscience on the use of the ketogenic diet for epilepsy, so 100-year-old evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. And we use epilepsy treatments in psychiatry all the time. All of that led me to using this in dozens and dozens of patients and sometimes seeing equal or more dramatic recoveries that I was helping people put their long-standing bipolar disorder, chronic depression, and schizophrenia into full and complete remission using the ketogenic diet and other strategies that ended up, you know, I could have stopped there. And there's a whole body of scientists pursuing this research now, the ketogenic diet for serious mental illness. And we've got clinical trials underway. People are doing basic science research. Everybody's interested in this field. But I didn't stop with that. I went on a deeper dive. How in the hell does schizophrenia go into remission? This is not supposed to happen. And I am seeing it over and over again now. And I have been a clinician, like at this point, I've been a clinician for 27 years. I have used all of our standard treatments, including electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation, clozapine, all of the best treatments we have. And I have never seen people go into full and lasting remission like I am seeing now. And at the end of the day, that is what brain energy is, is a deep dive into the science of everything that I've learned and how I connected these dots and how I have come to understand that what I believe is mental disorders are, in fact, metabolic brain disorders. Thank you for that. Quite, quite interesting. I mean, at <laughs> once, while reading the book, also at once, it is 
it is simple. You say, yeah, of course. But then at the same time, and you go quite deep into it at the beginning, this has been going on for many, many years that people have not focused on this. Indeed, there's this theme uh, about considering mental illness entirely separate from uh, other physical um, disorders or like symptoms or illnesses, other metabolic illnesses, be it heart attack or, or other diseases. And one of the messages that's coming through is that having such an assumption is also limiting physicians in, in treating, uh, treating patients and also pinpointing what is the root cause of a complex medical condition that could be a mix of mental symptoms and other physical, um, physical symptoms. Why do you think and when do you think this sort of assumption of separating, you know, brain from the body, so to say, has, has emerged and why has it been so prevalent? You know, in many ways, it makes sense that mental disorders got separated from physical disorders. So, you know, it, they clearly involve the brain. And so it made sense that neurologists, neuroscientists, and psychiatrists would focus on the brain as the organ that is malfunctioning. And so, it, it, you know, the brain doesn't have anything to do with the digestive tract, um, or the, you know, or the, certainly not the gut microbiome, or hormones, or insulin, or diet, or any of it. Like it, that's it, the brain. It, it, the brain is up there in your head, and and it's clearly malfunctioning in these people. And we just need to under better understand the brain. And once we better understand the brain, then we'll be able to understand where the pathology is. And you know, as you know, as a neuroscientist. The brain is ridiculously complicated and there is so much we don't understand about it. And so much that we, we, we barely know the basics about brain function. And when you get down to the cellular level, it gets even more complex. And so I think that whole line of research has been kind of bogged down in the complexity of the brain, the complexity of how the brain functions and trying to understand what on earth could cause the brain to malfunction to result in different symptoms of different mental disorders, like depression or OCD or others. There's been an entirely different field, though, and that is the field of psychological, you know, or even psychodynamic research, which is largely assumed that mental disorders are due to mental states. It's anxiety, it's depression, it's, you know, paranoia. And these are just thoughts that people experience. And so clearly the origin of mental disorders must be psychological. And then a whole other body of research says, no, it's social. It's things like trauma, abuse, neglect, poverty, um, crime. All of those things are driving mental disorders and there's a field that even unites those, the social determinants of health, which focus on how do those social adversities impact even physical health and mental health. But those are focused on, well, but it's still in your head, but they're just thoughts or they're just emotions and they're understandable thoughts and emotions. Like who wouldn't, who wouldn't feel that way or who wouldn't be having those experiences if they were traumatized? Everybody traumatized should be having those experiences. But in fact, as you know, and most listeners know, that's actually not true. Plenty of people have trauma. 
and never have PTSD. Plenty of people have trauma and never develop alcoholism or, you know, depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And yet other people have trauma and develop any or all of those. And, and so we, we need a more comprehensive view of mental um, disorders. And absolutely, as you said earlier, we have to connect the brain with the rest of the body and all of the other organs in it. And because it is an all an interconnected system. And it's connected basically with, with metabolism. Absolutely. I think at the end of the day, if one looks at all of the risk factors for mental illness, the biopsychosocial, so this is not biological mm -hmm. reductionism. And a lot of people are, you know, are sometimes accusing me of that without fully understanding the theory. But this is about integrating biological risk factors with trauma and stress and adversity and relationships and loneliness. It is about how do we integrate all of those into one human being and how does a person's brain and body react to those? And how can we put it all together to understand what would cause the brain to malfunction, at least in some people, and that malfunctioning is what we would call a mental illness. Mm -hmm. I mean, you touch upon those points um, you mentioned. So, for example, mental states, um, depression, anxiety. So these things actually could happen temporarily to all of us. And in fact, this is actually healthy. This is also experiencing emotions. This is actually part of being human. Same with more physical things like inflammation. This is actually good for your body at times to mount an immune response. It happens every time you exercise. So um, maybe there was also, at least that was my perception, a wish to say something was either good or bad or like causing, you know, an illness versus a healthy state, whereas all the evidence actually shows us it's more, much more complex than that. Absolutely. And I love that you got that. <laughs> Because that, you know, at the end of the day, that was one of the things I really struggled to convey to people because people do like simple messages. They, they want things in black and white terms. Is that good or bad? Is inflammation good or bad? Is, is stress good or bad? Is, you know, and, And they tend to lump things, you know, inflammation must be bad and stress must be bad and trauma is clearly bad and depression is always bad. And as you say, the, the, there is a continuum and there is a range of experiences. And yes, we all suffer because we're human. That is part of being a human being. Um, nobody has a perfect life with everything that they need every minute of every day. It, we all have periods of challenges or suffering, um, and those aren't illnesses. And we, it's really important that we are clear about that. They're not illnesses. For somebody to be depressed when they get dumped by the love of their life, it would actually be an illness if they didn't get depressed. Like, how could, you, how could you be left by the love of your life and not be depressed? Um, and, 
And so when that person gets depressed, for us to call that an illness or a brain disorder is absurd. It is absurd that we pathologize that. And it's not that we shouldn't help that person. I don't mean to say that that person might not benefit from psychotherapy or maybe even pills to help them sleep or something just because if, if they're really distraught, if they're really overwhelmed, which they have every right to be, um, that we as a human species need to help that individual. We need to rise up and support them. But that doesn't mean they have a brain disorder. And right now, the American Psychiatric Association, if that, if, if that person is still depressed after 14 days of being dumped by the love of their life, they only get 13 days to be depressed. If they're still depressed at day 14, then automatically, by definition, they have a brain disorder called major depressive disorder. And that is ludicrous. <laughs> I agree. And I mean, I wanted to also, this was one of my questions as well. Why so rigid with definitions of diagnosis? I mean, like you've mentioned one for, for depression. I mean, and do you think, is there any chance with the learnings you've presented, the research you presented in this book, and I mean, all around the world, researchers are trying to understand more how complex and heterogeneous human emotions and behaviors are like is there any hope to change that rigidity or is that rigidity helping us in in some other ways you know if the rigidity was helping us i wouldn't be here i would not have written the book i if if this if the current model was working i would be all for it i am a big fan of helping human beings of alleviating suffering improving people's lives. That is my goal. And I don't care what works. Whatever works, works. That's great. If, if people are on different diets, if people are on different types of psychotherapy, if people are practicing mindfulness, if people are taking pills, I don't care. If, if those things are helping them and improving their lives, I'm all for them. I am all for those things. But the very tragic reality is that mental disorders are now an escalating crisis in the world. They are growing in prevalence, and it's across the board, all sorts of mental disorders, anxiety, depression, but also autism, bipolar disorder, disorders that are not, according to our current theories, autism and bipolar disorder should not be skyrocketing in prevalence. They're not supposed to be, according to our genetic theories of those disorders. Genes are not supposed to mutate in the human species so rapidly that they triple in 10 or 20 years, that the rates of these disorders triple. And, and so we have an escalating crisis. And the reality is that more than 50% of people who get treatment for mental health conditions, way more than 50%, do not get full and complete remission of their illnesses that are lasting. Um, they, even with depression, you know, the, this bread and butter diagnosis of depression, we have dozens of antidepressants. We've got so many different types of psychotherapy. We've got electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation. We've got ketamine. We've got psychedelics now. We've got so many treatments. And the reality is depression is not a leading cause of disability on the planet because those treatments fail to work for far too many people. 
And if you look at real outcomes of patients, real patients getting real treatment, any combination of those treatments, more than 50% of those people are not getting better and staying better. And so we need entirely new ways to think about this. And so I do think we must, we must rethink how we understand mental illness and we must come up with new strategies to treat these disorders because what we are doing is just not working. Absolutely, and not good enough for the majority of the patients, clearly. And um, what you suggest is also adding into you know, this um, toolbox, so to say, addressing uh, metabolic, um, uh, basically, you highlight mitochondria. So maybe we can now go deep into, into the science. Mitochondria plays a big, big role in the book. And I want to also repeat one of the things that you have mentioned, all of us in biology class, well, those who haven't continued on to study further, but everybody who went to high school then knows that it's uh, the battery of the cell. And maybe you can tell how this is not really a very good representation of what mitochondria does in our bodies. Absolutely. So, so most people, yes, most people know mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. That's kind of the nickname they get. And what that means is they take food and oxygen and turn it into ATP, which is the energy currency of the cell. And all of that is true. They absolutely do that. And that function is critical to our human survival. And that's why if you don't get oxygen, like if somebody suffocates you, you will die within six minutes um, because you're not getting oxygen. Oxygen is being used exclusively by mitochondria to produce energy. And if they stop producing energy, we die. So there's no question. I don't want to minimize that function. It is a critically important function. But here's the surprising and shocking thing to most people is that over the last 20 years, this field has exploded. So this is cutting edge research. We are learning new things every day, practically, on the role of mitochondria. A lot of this hasn't made it into the popular press. A lot of people aren't aware of this research. But the last 20 years have told us that that simplistic model of what mitochondria are and what they're doing is absolutely wrong. That in fact, mitochondria are so much more than powerhouses of the cell. Um, to give you one just analogy, if it helps listeners understand. So one mitochondrial researcher used this analogy, said, if you think of a cell as a computer, a lot of people think of mitochondria as the power cord to that computer because they're the energy producer. And in fact, they are. They are the power cord to the computer. So if they're not working, there's no power to the computer. But actually, mitochondria are also the motherboard of that computer. They are directing and allocating resources. They are creating signals that kind of orchestrate what a cell is doing and how a cell functions. And the shocking thing to me, because I did not know much of this seven years ago, and that this was the shocking revelation to me, that the deeper I dove into the science, 
and down to molecular mechanisms of what mitochondria are doing in cells, the more that I as a psychiatrist and neuroscientist could begin to connect the dots of mental illness. And I began to see the big picture. And so to give you a quick whirlwind tour, mitochondria, in addition to powerhouses, they are also the primary, actually, regulator of epigenetics. They produce the signals that result in more than 50% of gene expression in cells. They also are primary regulators of the production and release of key neurotransmitters, things like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, acetylcholine. They are the regulators of the production of some key hormones, things like cortisol, estrogen, testosterone. They play a direct role in turning inflammation both on and off. They are critical in the control of calcium regulation, which helps, which is a signal in cells to kind of tell them to be on or off, so to speak. And they do several, many other things. But when you look at all of these roles of mitochondria, you actually can start to connect the dots of, oh my gosh, this would explain why neurotransmitter systems are influenced or why hormone levels like cortisol or are influenced in people with mental illness or why people with mental illness might have higher or lower levels of inflammation or impaired inflammatory responses, um, why they might have differences in gene expression. It begins to connect the dots for us. It's, you know, I used a metaphor that Einstein used which is kind of like, it's like climbing a mountain and seeing the forest from the trees. That's what it really is. It's seeing the big picture. It doesn't make that big picture any less complex. It's still complex. That forest still has so much detail in it. And you can get bogged down in the specifics of one tree, or you can dig into the dirt and look at all the insects and, and the worms and the dirt and, and start to study them. Or you can look at the whole the system as a whole and talk about rain and nutrients from the soil and how they're all needed to help a tree or a bush grow. But when you rise up above it all and see the forest from the trees, you can actually begin to make sense of mental health and human health and how mental and physical illnesses are connected. But much more importantly, in my mind, as a clinician, you can see new pathways to treatment, pathways that can help people restore their mental health and their brain function. And um, which, which kind of uh, treatment options? For example, I was thinking when you mentioned current treatments do not help quite a large majority uh, of, of patients. Um, and we have also currently, I mean, um, an era of personalized and precision medicine that is coming, basically acknowledging the fact that every individual is um, experiencing um, all kinds of environmental, social uh, pressures. They have their own uh, genetic makeup um, and they have their own history, basically, you know, acquired all kinds of uh, more epigenetic changes. So everybody is 
different from one another where we have been trying to treat um, uh, with with the same medication. So understanding of metabolism's role in mental illness and mental health, um, do you see this opening up avenues for for more personalized medicine? 100%. And I think that's one of the themes of the book is that you know, people often want simple solutions and they'll come to me and say, oh, well, if you have a unifying theory, then tell me, how can I cure my son's bipolar disorder? Um, Tell me what to do. And I'm always saying, well, I don't have a specific answer for you. However, if you tell me more information about your son and I'm going to ask some things about diet and insulin resistance and maybe other hormone levels but I'm also going to ask about sleep and substance use and stress or a trauma history. I'm going to ask about exercise, um, any sources of inflammation or any you know signs that this person has an inflammatory condition, like long COVID. That's really wreaking havoc across the world right now and taking a toll on brain health because it is a chronic infection or at least a chronic inflammatory condition. Um, but once we understand those things, like all of those things are basic health and wellness checkup kind of questionnaires. Once we understand those, we can put together a comprehensive treatment plan. As you say, a personalized treatment plan or an individualized treatment plan based on that person's risk factors, environment. And I do believe that we can address these things. So, Although I say it's complicated, let me at least just give one big picture example. There are three well-accepted, well-known metabolic disorders, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart attacks. Those are all metabolic disorders, and they are all interrelated with each other. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who has a heart attack was obese or everybody who has a heart attack had type 2 diabetes. It also doesn't mean that all type 2 diabetics are going to end up having heart attacks. But they are three interrelated metabolic disorders. And if you give me a person who is obese and type 2 diabetic and on the verge of a heart attack, and if any of your listeners know somebody like that, and that person comes to you begging, help me understand what I can do to improve my health and get better and prevent a heart attack. You all know the answers. It's not rocket science, folks. We're going to look at your diet. We're going to maybe start an exercise plan, but we're also going to pay attention to sleep and stress and substance use like smoking cigarettes or alcohol use or marijuana use. And we're going to also, believe it or not, we're going to look at other psychological and social things. We're going to look at relationships, meaning and purpose in life, because those things can play a role in the stress response and actually influence whether somebody has a heart attack, believe it or not. But guess what? All of those things also play a role in mental disorders, all the way from anxiety to depression to bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. 
I really like it in the way when you're talking about a personalized plan. This is not only limited to what we understand as drugs or treatments currently. These are not only like pharmaceuticals or, or other medicine. If like that also might be, as you mentioned, it's effective in some and might be useful in certain situations. But for sure, it's also about understanding lifestyle um, choices. And as much as for, you know, treating uh, diseases it's also for living healthy so um i want to ask and you go through a lot of um different contributing factors that cause metabolic disorders including uh brain disorders um what if you could pick three and if you don't want to pick three that's also okay if you want to go through more what is the what would you say that we should you know pay attention uh, to make sure that we actually uh, keep our metabolism healthy and you know not have any kind of um, or prevent any kind of serious disorders i i think the three things i would pick it is hard to pick just three because you know if somebody has severe impairment in their sleep for instance i'm really going to want to focus on their sleep um and uh but I think across the board, the three areas that I would focus on the most are diet, using dietary strategies to optimize metabolic and mental health. I would focus on exercise. I think humans are meant to move and exercise is really important in our metabolic and mental health. And I think the third category I would choose are substances that impair metabolism. And that includes things like smoking cigarettes, heavy alcohol use, heavy marijuana use, but it also includes, unfortunately, some prescription medications, which we know can cause significant weight gain. They can cause type 2 diabetes. They can cause premature heart attacks and strokes. And I am extraordinarily worried based on this theory that we might actually be keeping some people chronically ill by the very prescriptions that we are offering them. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I want to go a little bit deeper into those three topics, if we may. So nutrition, I mean, you have a um, quite an extensive chapter. So maybe for the listeners who do not know that for a long time, actually, ketogenic diet has been used in treatment of certain mental illnesses. Why is nutrition so important for our metabolism and therefore our brain health? So, so nutrition... You know, most people know that nutrition plays a role in metabolic health. Obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, those are all metabolic disorders. And everybody, everybody on the planet essentially knows that what we eat, how much we eat, when we eat, those types of issues play a role in those disorders. But what a lot of people don't know is that what we eat, when we eat, and how much we eat also plays a role in our brain health. And that means our mental health too. And um, there, you know, this is one area where it's difficult for me to give simple advice. Like everybody's looking for it. So tell me what to do. Well, it really does. This is where personalized recommendations are 
critically important because if I'm working with a woman who has anorexia nervosa, who is grossly underweight, my recommendations for her are going to be, we've got to get you to gain weight. We have to restore nourishment to your body. And that is nourishment in the form of you need a little, maybe a little more muscle mass. You might need a little bit of more fat stores on your body. Um, you, you know, the human body is not meant to be zero fat. It just isn't. Sorry. Uh, and uh, so this person needs at least some fat stores just for healthy, normal function of hormones and other things. And this person needs nutrients. That is very different than if I'm working with somebody who weighs 600 pounds and is grossly overweight and highly inflamed and has type 2 diabetes um, that person I'm going to work with and use dietary strategies to help that person lose weight, improve metabolic health in that way. So those two extremes might result in polar opposite dietary recommendations. And yet diet is critically important. And again, it's not, even though I just said, oh, it's a little complex folks. And yeah, that probably wasn't that shocking to most of you. You all, you all should know that this this is not rocket science. This is, but but we do need to use individualized plans. We need to think about the person in front of us. Maybe just do an assessment. What do they have insulin resistance? Do they have metabolic syndrome? Do they have hypertension? Do they have abnormal triglycerides, cholesterol levels? Do they have high levels of inflammation? And if they do, we're going to use dietary strategies to address those areas specifically. But again, not rocket science. Um, a lot of this you can get online, you can get from books, you can, I mean, there are th millions of books out there on this, on these topics. Um, so I'm always reluctant to give this one size fits all solution, but zero doubt, as you said, ketogenic diets are in a special category, I think. And it's not that I think that the ketogenic diet is the quote unquote healthy diet that every human being should be doing, but the ketogenic diet is a brain intervention, if you will, or brain treatment. And we use, you know, the best evidence for this is in the epilepsy field. We use it to treat seizures and it can stop seizures even when medications and even when surgery fail to stop seizures. This dietary intervention can stop seizures, and it is much more effective in treatment-resistant epilepsy than another medication would be. And so I think using that and using the neuroscience literature on that, we know that it changes neurotransmitters, it decreases brain inflammation, changes gene expression. It does all sorts of things that are really important. Central to my theory of yeah, the brain energy theory is that it improves mitochondrial health and quantity so that after people have been on a ketogenic diet for several months or years, their cells will actually have more mitochondria and those mitochondria will be healthier. And I believe that can help restore metabolic health and brain health. And if we think about the exercise, you've mentioned actually something quite interesting, human beings 
are supposed to be, you know, on the move? Are we creating with a rather sedentary lifestyle, you know, um, and, and like an external condition, environmental condition that is affecting our health? Again, you have, um, we know it for metabolic disorders, for the ones like obesity um, uh, and uh, diabetes and so on. Exercise is really key. Um, so, how does it uh, also connect uh, with with brain health? So we know that exercise, you know, improves neurotransmitter functions. It improves neuroplasticity, and you know, there's a there's a hormone called BDNF, brain derived neurotrophic factor, that um, that actually, if you do a deep dive into the science of BDNF it stimulates mitochondrial production <laughs> and mitophagy. And that BDNF ends up resulting in increased neuroplasticity, which means that your brain becomes more adaptable. That's what neuroplasticity means. It's, it, it is an adaptable brain ready to change, ready to form new connections between neurons, ready to grow, also ready to prune, like, you know, pruning parts that are no longer needed, but it is a highly adaptable brain, adapting to your environment and your circumstances um, and optimizing your health, optimizing your ability to survive in your environment. And exercise promotes all of those things. Um, we know that exercise improves metabolic health at the same time. So if you're overweight, if you're type two diabetic, if you're, you know, if you've had a heart attack or if you are having chest pain that might be a prelude to a heart attack, um, there's no doubt exercise is important and critical in your treatment plan and your recovery. Um, and, uh, so yeah, um, no doubt exercise plays a role. I think in terms of our current lifestyle, there's no doubt sitting around looking at a screen, whether that screen is your cell phone or a computer or a television, screens have a tendency to mesmerize human beings and we become really still and motionless. And for any of you who have a pet, like a dog, if you, if you put on interesting kind of content, especially other dogs, on a television set, your dog will equally become mesmerized and just sit there and look at the screen. If you imagine doing that to your dog 14 hours a day, strap your dog into a chair, strap your dog into a chair so that it can't move and is mesmerized by a screen. Any of you with dogs know that would be really cruel and bad for that dog's health to be strapped into a chair and just looking at a screen all day. Dogs are supposed to run around they're supposed to like get excited. They're supposed to come lick you or come, you know, ask you to take them for a walk. And when you take them for a walk, they don't just walk around and meander. They go and explore the world. They go chase squirrels or other dogs or, you know, they bark or you know, defend you and, you know, get, get growl at people who they think are a threat to you or themselves. 
that's what dogs do. They move. They go about the planet and move. And humans are supposed to be doing the same thing, believe it or not. Very sadly and tragically, we are becoming a species that is glued to chairs, watching screens, because screens mollify us and make us sedentary. And it really is not good for our biological health. And I think we're seeing the consequence, uh, consequences of that, unfortunately, with uh, increasing um, metabolic disorders, including also brain disorders. Yeah. And now if we go through the, the third um, uh, contributing factor that you have mentioned, uh, substance abuse. I mean, there I'm, I'm really wondering, you have already um, gotten a bit into it. We might again be creating uh, new Uh, problems by trying to fix another one. How uh, can we make sure um, to, as, as a, also a society, move from this, you know, like um, one, uh, I don't know, is it, be it alcohol or be it prescription drugs, and again, embrace a little bit this um, uh, complex approach in, in trying to improve improve our health, be it from a diagnostic, you know, very professional medical point of view, and on the other side, on a, on a daily basis, understanding actually like a certain one thing is, is not going to fix your problems and actually making things worse. So maybe the easiest example for me to use will be marijuana. Because marijuana is growing in popularity here in the United States. It's becoming increasingly legal for medical use, but also for recreational use. And a lot of people here in America think that that means that it must be safe. Um, if it's becoming legal, then that the government is saying that it's safe. And in reality, marijuana absolutely has some therapeutic properties. If you are anxious, it can decrease your anxiety. If you have chronic pain, it can decrease that chronic pain. If you have nausea um, from chemotherapy, it can decrease your nausea. If you have a seizure disorder that is not responding to other treatments, it can actually reduce or stop your seizures. Now, all of those, in theory, sound like really good things. And so most people assume, well, then, mar see, see, Dr. Palmer just said marijuana is really good. Marijuana is really good for you. Anything that stops pain and seizures and anxiety, it must be good. It's doing good things. And if you are experiencing those symptoms and you use marijuana to control those symptoms, those are good things. I'm not here to dispute that. But when you understand the mechanism of action, how exactly is it stopping that pain? How exactly is it stopping that seizure? How exactly is it stopping that anxiety? When you understand the science that I really painstakingly go through in, in the brain energy theory, you can actually begin to understand, oh, wait, wait, oh, oh, this is complex. Yeah, I can see how marijuana might stop those symptoms, and yet it might be impairing metabolism and brain health over the long run. 
And the reality is we have an abundance of evidence to support that. Adolescents who use marijuana have areas of brain atrophy, which means parts of their brain are shrinking prematurely. They are already showing signs of premature aging. We know that marijuana impairs memory. That is unequivocal. Anybody who has smoked marijuana knows it to be true. It impairs memory. Now, when people are smoking marijuana, they don't really care about remembering anything. They're looking to relax, um, and they probably don't want to remember. So that maybe that's okay for, you know, every now and then. But um, marijuana can also stimulate or trigger psychosis. And um, people who are heavy marijuana users, heavy marijuana users have four times the rate, 400% increased risk for developing schizophrenia. Now, a lot of people argue that, well, they were already destined to develop schizophrenia, and that's why they're using marijuana. Maybe they were anxious from their emerging schizophrenia symptoms. But when you understand the science, detailed science that already exists, all you have to do is read it and understand it. And once you understand it, you can see how, no, marijuana is actually causing schizophrenia, at least in some people. And that means we could prevent schizophrenia in some people if they just got off the marijuana, avoided it, and or if they begin to develop symptoms, if we use a different approach, if we use a metabolic treatment strategy to restore their brain health, um, as opposed to using other treatments Unfortunately, like even some antipsychotic medications, which even further impair mitochondrial function and further impair brain health, they can reduce symptoms in the short run. There is no doubt about that. And we have plenty of randomized controlled trials documenting that. But again, I think we need to take a longer term perspective on what are we really doing to people and how can we help people fully recover from illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Thank you for that um, foray into into marijuana and 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 what what it does to the brain. I mean, indeed, it's it's quite important to understand. Yes, I mean, symptoms might be treated, but then you have to know on a on a cellular level what is what is going on and what are some of the the consequences. Um, to close, I, I, my last question is: You've mentioned at the beginning of the call, like there are so many um, uh, so many new research actually popping up with regards to uh, metabolism and its role in, in brain and, and other parts of body, obviously. Um, since, you know, publishing the book beyond what is covered there, is there something new in the horizon that is very exciting as a new um, scientific hypothesis and so on that's, that, is, um, that you would like to share? ongoing research? Honestly, there are so many that <laughs> it's, it's hard to list a few. What, so what I would say is that the, the field of the ketogenic diet for serious mental disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, chronic depression, that is really emerging now. And we have at least five controlled trials of the ketogenic diet for serious mental illness underway. There are additional trials of the ketogenic diet for alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, and others. And so 
I think a lot of people are really interested in that, again, because the neuroscience is there. It just makes sense once you do a deep dive into this science. Um, I think, you know, I've had several biotech companies reach out to me who have molecules that can improve mitochondrial health or mitochondrial ATP production or maybe decrease oxidative stress. So I think there are countless opportunities for the development of new therapeutics that can help people when they are acutely psychotic or manic or depressed or suicidal. We are going to need interventions for those people. I mean, there's no question about it. Those those states, those mental disorders, those symptoms can create life-threatening situations. And so no doubt we need classes of therapeutic medications that will help these people in their recovery. But this is an entirely new approach, focusing on mitochondria and metabolic health, as opposed to just shooting in the dark with like, well, maybe if we block dopamine D2 receptors, that'll somehow help. Or maybe if we increase serotonin levels somehow, that'll help. This, this, I think the thing that's most exciting is that with a clear scientific picture in mind, at least a big picture, all of the details were decades away or centuries away from knowing. We just are. Again, do we know that all of the details of even the forest? We really don't. We, we really don't fully understand all of biology for all plants and all insects and all animals. Like we still have so much to learn even in understanding the details of the forest. But when you see the forest from the trees, when you see the big picture, you can map out a mo- more coherent strategy for how to move research forward. And with the clear goal, how can we improve people's lives today? People whose lives are decimated by mental illness, people who are suffering, people who are begging for more effective treatments, what can we do for them? And I am convinced that this strategy gives us entirely new pathways to pursue. Great. Thanks a lot, Dr. Palmer, for this very interesting exchange. And um, the book was such a joy to read. And uh, I recommend it for everybody who's interested in what's going on in their body in the in the form of metabolism and how it affects um, mental health, among other things. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 